Well, this morning we're going to be in chapter 1 of James. If you got your Bibles, open them up. Chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 8. But before we get started, let me, let me give you some scenarios to think about. There's a young couple who uh, discover that their uh, two-year-old daughter, almost three, is uh, struggling with uh, a lingering fever. It just won't go away. And uh, they can't get it down. It, they get it down a little bit. It keeps creeping back up. And they finally take her to the doctor. The doctor runs some tests. The doctor says, you need to take her to the hospital, have some more tests run. They take her to the hospital, and then they tell her, you need to take her to Cook's. That's usually not a good sign. Uh, they take her to Cook's, and uh, just this last week, uh, we're informed that she's got leukemia. Two years old. How about this one? A couple in the church who have raised their daughter, they adopted her as a little girl, have raised her, struggled with all kinds of eating disorders and um, personality issues and just conflicts. And when she turns 18, she uh, runs away with a boy that she's just met. Flies to California and they try to get her to come home. She will not come home and she starts spreading rumors about them as parents that they're abusive, that they've done all kinds of bad things to her. And they've lost their daughter. What, what would you tell these people? What would you tell the first couple? What words of wisdom would you give to these individuals? What would you say to them if they came to you in the midst of that kind of a trial? How about a couple that uh, no longer go to our church, but uh, they've moved? But when they were here, uh, their first child was born with, with a severe uh, handicap both uh, mental and physical handicap. And they were excited about the birth of this baby. They had all the tests run. Everything was fine. But she's born with a, a, a just an incredibly rare brain disorder. Doctors can't even explain it. So they go through that and, and uh, get over the initial grief. They go to the doctors and say, is it safe for us to have another child? And the doctors say, yes, it's not hereditary. The chances of this happening again are nil. So they get pregnant. You can guess the second half of the story. Second child is born with the same exact disorder. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the, the daughter is now 13. The son is probably nine. Both in wheelchairs. Both require constant care. Feeding through tubes. What would you tell a couple like that in the midst of a trial? And finally, how about a couple who um, struggle with a son who develops a, an addiction, a drug addiction, and struggle through that and, and watch him come out of that with a lot of tears, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and he goes through rehab and he looks like he's on the positive side of that equation only to find that just recently he's fallen back into it. What would you tell a couple like that? Well, I've asked Chris Groff to come and share because the last story is his story. And I've just asked him to come up and tell a little bit about what God has done in his life through this trial. So, Chris... 
it on? Yeah. No. Turn yes. on. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the passage, uh, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind, has become uh, my favorite, you know, because uh, I know Doug uh, last week, we're not good. How's that? Cool. You're on. Yeah. That's a couple trials for you now. You get to hear me at full volume. You know, Doug was talking about the salvation passages uh, last week in the sermon. And, uh, you know, and those are, those are dear to me. Uh, but uh, my life over the last, uh, been five years now, have, has been uh, mostly related to sanctification. And this considerate pure joy uh, passage has become actually the title of an article that I'm writing right now, Considerate Pure Joy, uh, Journey Through My Son's Addiction. Um, in 2003, uh, we were living fat and happy, Monticello, big house, fast cars, lots of money, uh, great vacations. And, uh, you know, and, and the, our lifestyle uh, was uh, what our culture would consider to be very successful. Uh, but we had drifted far from God. Um, you know, we didn't need God because everything was going so well. And in the summer of that year, we got a knock on the door at 2.30 in the morning and uh, Pandora's box was open. My 16-year-old son um, had been doing a number of things, uh, all of the things, uh, not just one or two, that you never want your kids to do. And it completely shocked us, took us back. We didn't see it coming. And, you know, in retrospect, maybe we had a couple of signs, but nothing like this. And we panicked, you know. Um, what words of wisdom would you give? I mean, we talked to people. We talked to uh, pastors and we talked to other parents and um you know and and really the the situation had gotten to a point where uh we we could no longer parent this this boy and we ended up putting him in a treatment program as ken described uh 10 months in colorado he spent his whole junior year in colorado at a program called shelterwood you know and during this experience with him at shelterwood um michelle and i um drifted you know, had been drifting from God, and so we put him in a Christian program thinking, man, maybe this is going to be good for him. Uh, you know, it's okay for us, but it's not a big deal. Um, but the, but this, this trial, you know, consider it pure joy, um, kind of trial that we were having um, was brought home to us when we went for the first family weekend at Shelterwood. And we were surrounded by other parents who looked just like us. You know, they weren't all tattooed drug addicts um, and ex-cons, but there were a lot of parents like us. And they began to, at this uh, parents' weekend, they taught parenting classes to us uh, because their theory was, we're going to be with your son 24-7, um, but if we send him back to the same old dysfunctional home, we're not going to do any good, and we don't have any great long-term uh, hope for success. And so it was in that parenting class that first weekend in October of that year that we felt the presence of God for the first time in a really long time. And it was as if God sat between us, the two of us, in those little chairs and those tiny little desks in Colorado and said, I know what you're going through. I feel it and I've felt it any number of times. And uh, and it wasn't in a condescending, judgmental, see, I told you, I couldn't wait for you to have kids, so you'd, be, you'd know what it was like. It wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, that total, complete, unconditional empathy. Um, so much so that uh, our lives changed. Um, Michelle and I came back. 
determined to take these principles and apply them and, and just help uh, other parents, our friends in Fort Worth, just learn what we've learned. And it's resulted in a ministry. We go to seminary now, uh, and we have a full-on, you know, 40-hour-a-week job in parenting by design. And that was great, and it was awesome, and our experience with God, you know, turned our lives around. We became, um, you know, we, we, really, we really bought this, uh, this process, and our son got significantly better in rehab, and he's really good at rehab. Uh, got baptized, um, became a believer up there, and, and was buying the program until he came back to Fort Worth. And went to senior year at Arlington Heights, um, and was was doing pretty well. Went to Austin College in a fraternity. Uh, during some hazing, they broke his wrist and went to the doctor and got some pain pills. And uh, it started him on the long descent um, back into addiction. But we didn't know. <clears throat> and uh, we, we sensed there was something wrong. He came back home. January of this year, the unthinkable happens on the First day of this year, uh, relapse. And I can tell you that, you know, we, in my mind, I had resolved that this was over. We had learned. Thank you so much, God. I considered it joy. You know, I went through those trials. You brought us back to you. We understand, like we could never have understood before, what it must be like for you as the parent of billions of children, um, what that's like. And Thanks so much, um, but, you know, we don't need any more help here. And on the first, we learned that my um, now 21-year-old son is addicted to heroin. (laughs) Do you know anybody like that? You know, this is a kid that went to Country Day, um, you know, grew up in Monticello, is addicted to heroin, of all things. And the first day we found out... um, I remember going to bed that night, laying in bed, and just in my mind screaming at God, um, I want my son back. Um, but that wasn't the plan. And I can, you know, for about, well, I went with him to detox. Um, and this time it's on his ticket, not mine. So we're in the county system, the belly of the beast. Uh, so we go to a free detox in Dallas County um, with... You know, his now, now his peers, um, the drug addicts, the homeless, um, the, the, the <laughs> it's, a, it's a harsh world. Um, and he checks into a program on January the 14th. He went into a program in South Fort Worth, uh, funded by him, um, and he works 60-hour weeks at a manufacturing plant to pay for it. And the transformation in him has been astounding. We got a letter from him yesterday. And he said, and, and the point of his letter is, I am so sorry that you had to see me try to destroy myself. I'm so sorry that you had to see me lying on the floor of the detox place, um, you know, in, in early January. But he said, God's everywhere here. I see him in everything. And I believe that this was God's design to make me into the person he wants me to be. And my goal it's an 18-month program. He's not coming out of this thing until he's 23 years old. Um, my goal is to, you know, despite the negativity in this place and uh, the lack of belief, is to, um, you know, strengthen myself in the Word. He's 
gosh, he's read all the New Testament and all the Psalms now, and he quotes them to us constantly, um, which is interesting. Um, but his goal is to come out of this thing um, and, to, and then to minister to people like that. You know, and it's the God of all comfort who comforts you in these trials, you know, expects you then to take that experience and, and comfort others, and that, that's his goal. What words of wisdom would you have given me? Um, you know, you could talk all you want, and the worst thing you can do to somebody in, a, in the midst of a trial is to, quote, consider it all joy. You know, it's just, it's so hard to do that. Um, you have to turn to God. And, you know, and I think, we're, are we starting with verse 5? Um, if, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will meet that in ways you can't believe. I mean, I, I, I am astounded. Um, I am amazed at what he's done through this experience, which I considered totally unfair, um, wrong, uh, unnecessary, and he's made it into something incredible. And I think that my son, you know, I have a choice. I'm going to have a believer in rehab or a captain of industry that's an unbeliever. I'm choosing this one every time. So. Word of prayer for uh, Chris and Michelle and their son. Father, we come to you uh, right now and we just thank you for um, this testimony of your faithfulness, even in the midst of trials. Trials that there's not a man in this room who would choose to go through what they're going through. Uh, and yet, Father, you are faithful and you are there and you are working behind the scenes in ways that we don't even know about. Father, I pray this morning that you would be with uh, Chris and Michelle and just strengthen them and encourage them. And with their son, that he would have the, the stamina and the diligence and the determination through the power of the Holy Spirit to continue down the path on which you have him. That he would truly be salt and light in the midst of extreme darkness. And that, Father, this, uh, this change in him would be a permanent change. Um, a a God-ordained change that he might be a witness for you. And thank you for uh, him being able to see you in the midst of his pain and his suffering and his trials. Help us to see the same thing, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's, let's look at verses 5 through 8 as we start this morning. You know, last week we, we looked at that oft-quoted verse, uh, as Chris said, we tend to quote it to other people, not to ourselves. Consider it all joy, verse 2 says, when you encounter various trials. But then verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, you know, there, there are people in your life that, that are going to come up and they've got all kinds of trials, they have all kinds of difficulties. What are you going to tell these people? What would you tell a Chris and Michelle Groff? What would you tell uh, Nick, Nick Espinette and Sonny, whose little girl is at Cook's Hospital, uh, now with leukemia and facing uh, chemotherapy, which started yesterday? Uh, two years old, precious little girl. What are you going to tell them? This morning, we want to talk about this issue of wisdom. 
And the, the fact is, as we looked at last week, trials are going to come, right? They're just part of life. You're going to have trials of all kinds, big, small, major trials, small trials. They're going to come, but if, if you're like I am, and, and as Chris even shared, that sometimes when they come, you're short on wisdom. What do I do here? What do I do with this trial when it comes? Chris's trial is a pretty major trial, isn't it? That's a major deal. But what are you going to do when the trials come? How do you respond to those trials? Verse 5 says, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. And we're going to see that we got to keep these verses in their context. You can't isolate these verses which is exactly what most people do with the book of James. We treat the book of James like it's Proverbs. Little isolated tidbits of information and we misapply them and we misinterpret them. But you got to keep it in the context. As I said week one, this, is, this book is the theology of suffering. It's all about suffering because it's written to who? Jewish believers who have, who have living out in the... Different countries of that day, they're scattered all over the known world. They're under persecution because they're Jews first and foremost. They've come to know Christ because now now they're hated by their own Jewish families and Jewish brothers and sisters. They're doubly persecuted. Most of them are probably poor. This is a book about suffering, about trials. And you've got to keep these verses, 5 through 8, in the context of suffering. So you've got to link them together. It's, it, he's continuing this theme of how do you handle trials. Remember, he, he says, greetings, verse 1, and then he jumps right into, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. He just goes right to the point he wants to make. And he continues the point throughout the book. Trials, suffering. You know, verse 4 ends with this phrase, if any of you says... Uh, let endurance have its perfect, perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, he ends the verse that way. Then he starts verse 5 with, but if any of you lacks wisdom. See, the goal is spiritual maturity. That's the intent of the book. That's the objective for which he's writing. He wants you to be spiritually mature in the midst of trials. But he says, but if you lack wisdom, ask of God. That word lack in both cases, the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5, is this word. It means to be wanting, to be destitute of, to be lagging behind in. So you see you're in the midst of these trials. It says, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance, when it's had its perfect result, will leave you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you lack in wisdom, what are you going to do? Where are you going to turn? See, I think the, the, the key point here is in the midst of trials, our biggest need is going to be what? Wisdom to know how to face the trials, how to handle the trials. And so he cuts right to the chase, and I think he's basically saying, you're all lacking in wisdom. You're all facing trials. The one thing you're all missing is wisdom. What are you going to do in the midst of the trials? When trials come and you don't know what to do, where are you going to turn? Who are you going to turn to? What's your first impulse when something bad happens? Who do you, who do you tend to gravitate towards? And it's going to be key for, for his answer to them is turn to God. Ask God. Not ask other people, but ask God. But what's this wisdom he's talking about? 
He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, what kind of wisdom is this? First of all, it's not knowledge. You know, we, we, we go hit the books. Um, we want to find out everything we can find out about that particular issue. Uh, and I know Chris and Michelle probably went and read everything they could get their hands on about addiction and dealing with addiction. I'm sure Nick and Sonny are looking up everything on the Internet they can find about leukemia. But, you know, knowledge isn't what we need. Knowledge isn't going to solve the problem, and it's not going to make leukemia go away. Learning about leukemia doesn't make it go away. Learning about addiction doesn't solve your son's problem. So knowledge is not the answer. Knowledge involves just information. It's facts. We fill our minds with facts, and we may know more about the issue than we knew before, but we still got the issue, don't we? We still have the same problem. So when he says, if you lack wisdom, it's not information, it's not knowledge, it's not facts. Wisdom is the ability or insight to properly use the facts efficiently and effectively. So there's nothing wrong with gaining the knowledge, but if that's all you do, you're, you're stuck. You need wisdom to know, what do I do with this now? What do I do with the knowledge that I've gained, the information that I've gleaned? What do I do with it? How do I use it efficiently and effectively? That's wisdom. That's the wisdom we need to seek. It's seeing and responding to life situations from God's frame of reference. And I think the hardest thing for you and I, and especially as men, is when we get into a trial or we get into a situation, much like Chris's, Nick and Sonny's, others that you may be going through, we view it from one perspective and one perspective only, and it's ours. And God is saying, you know what, there is another perspective There is another way of looking at this situation, and it's mine as God. You've got to learn to see it from his frame of reference, see it from his viewpoint, and it will be radically different. Now, is that hard to do in the midst of the trial? You bet. Is it easier in hindsight? Yes. But what I think what James is saying is, you know what, I want you to develop the capacity and the ability in the midst of a trial to see me in the trial and see the trial from my viewpoint, from my perspective. And it will change the way you look at it. What's the opposite of wisdom? It's your own natural inclinations. It's how you would normally handle it. And this doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, how we normally handle situations. What are our natural inclinations? Get mad. You know, Chris said he laid in bed and he just, in his, in his spirit, was just screaming at God. See, that's what we do. We get mad. It, and it, it could be a small thing. It could be a big thing. The small things make you mad. I used the illustration last week. If I walk out right now and I've got a flat tire, I will not be happy. Now, if you're standing there, I will control myself. But if you're not around, Katie, bar the door. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let somebody know I'm not real happy. I get mad. I, I, I kick inanimate objects. That's what I do. I'll never forget when I was working for an agency here in Fort Worth and we had a two story open atrium type format and, uh, big open area and, and the offices were all, uh, glass offices around the edge and they had no ceiling. And so I had one of those offices. The reception area was at the top of a spiral staircase, 
And so it overlooked the entire office. And um, I don't even know what happened that day, but it had not been a good day for me. It was just not a happy day. And something had happened, and um, I walk out of my office, and I, I just slam my fist into the, a file cabinet right outside my office, not knowing that because of the shape of the ceiling and the open atmosphere, it was like a cannon went off. And there were guests up in the entryway and it like everybody and, and it was all glass so i'm standing in the middle i hit this thing dent in the side of the thing and everybody's staring at me and i just lowered my head and i walked back in my office shut the door with the glass and just sat at my desk and it was so funny because they did not replace that file cabinet ever and it was like a permanent reminder to me of my stupidity and my anger. That's what I do when I, when I encounter trials. I just get mad. Sometimes we get even. If it involves another person. Oh yeah, you're going to do that to me? I'm going to make your life a living hell. I will get back. I will get even. You'll regret the day you did that to me. It could be a co-worker. It could be a neighbor. It could be... sad thing is it could be a spouse. I will get even. We question God. We just sit there and, okay, God, what do you think you're doing? Where are you in this? What are you, why are you doing this to me? We throw all kinds of questions at God. And we may not address him directly, but we do question God. His wisdom, his timing, his love, his integrity, we question him. We doubt his word. You know, if somebody comes up to you in the midst of a trial and they quote verse 2, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You will doubt that. I guarantee you will doubt it. You'll go, you're an idiot. Get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. I don't believe it. I don't think it's possible. You will begin to doubt God's word. You'll take matters into your own hands. That's what we do as men, isn't it? You know, I'll, I'll solve this somehow. I may kill myself in the process, but I will solve this problem. I will fix this trial. I will make it go away. Others of us have pity parties. You know, we want everybody around us to know we're miserable. Uh, We want everybody to know we're having a bad day, that something's gone wrong, and we will whine and moan, and we'll, you know, we're like Eeyore. You know, we're just black cloud. We got everything. Everything around us communicates that I'm miserable. Poor me. We want others to see it. And here's another one we do is we ask them to remove it. And man, if it's, it, and it doesn't take much. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. But if we get into a trial and we pray to God, it's typically, please take this away. Please remove this trial. And I don't know about you, but I, my experience is very rarely does he do that for me. And it's usually because he wants me in the midst of the trial to learn something, to learn something about him and to learn something about me. And here's one that some of us do. We wonder what we did wrong. Don't you know that Chris and Michelle probably sat there on several nights, either together or alone, and went through that process of where did we screw up? Where did we go wrong? What did we do to cause our son to be an addict? What could we have done differently? Where, and you just go through this mind game of just what did we do wrong? Maybe I offended God. Maybe I did something to make God mad. What could I have done differently? See, these are all our natural, natural inclinations, and they are the opposite of wisdom. 
They're what we would do in the flesh. But Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When we start to, and we talked about this when we did the attributes of God, when you begin to fear God for who He is, His righteousness, His holiness, His power, His majesty, His grace, His mercy, and you begin to look at Him and realize that He is a holy, mighty, awesome God, and you begin to understand how holy He really is, you will begin the process of gaining wisdom. You'll turn to him in the midst of a trial and he will begin to give you the wisdom you really need. So it begins with a God-focused perspective. When a trial comes, the first place you need to look is not at your trial, you need to look at him. What did Peter do when he stepped out of the boat? Jesus invites him out of the boat, he steps out, and as long as he kept his eyes focused on the Lord, what, what happened? He walked on water in the midst of a storm. What happened when he took his eyes off the Lord and looked at the storm? He sank like a rock. See, it's got to begin with a God-focused perspective. Don't, don't fixate on the trial. And I know that's easy for me to say. You know, when I went up and visited Nick and Sonny at the hospital, it's really easy for me to sit there and say, well, don't, don't think about your two-year-old daughter having leukemia. Look on God. But it's a process that in the midst of it, we have to keep looking at him and saying, I don't understand this. I don't like it. I wish it would go away, but you know what? I'm going to try to trust you because you're a holy, loving, righteous God. And you have a plan. You're working your plan in the midst of this. You have to ask, where are you, God, in this trial? Where are you? What are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? What can I learn from this about you and about me? And oftentimes the lessons are for us of just about ourselves, how prideful we are, how much of a temper we have, how self-sufficient we are. He wants us to learn about us, but he also wants us to learn about him. So why do we need this kind of wisdom? Why is it, why is it necessary? Number one, it's to bear up under trials. Trials are going to come. You cannot live a life free from trials. It just doesn't happen. Again, as Chris said, they were living the, the good life. They had the cars, the house, the, the income. They had everything going for them, yet trials kept coming. Money doesn't keep you from having trials. If anything, it may escalate the trials. They may be bigger. Your losses may be greater. Your risks may be higher. So we need it because trials are coming, so we've got to learn to bear up under trials. James Manton and his... Uh, Commentary on James says, to bear afflictions requires a great deal of spiritual skill and wisdom. We just got to have it because if you're going to make it through the trial, if Chris and Michelle are going to continue to make it through this trial, if Nick and Sonny are going to make it through their trial, they're going to need the wisdom of God. He goes on and says, cheerful patience is a holy skill that we learn from God. Cheerful patience, it's a holy skill. Where do we get it from? We get it from God. We got to go to him. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says we should not pray so much for the removal of affliction, which is what I tend to do, as for wisdom to make a right use of it. What a different perspective that is. You know, if, if, if somebody comes to you and they've got a trial, your natural inclination will be what? To pray the trial away. And I'm not telling you not to pray for healing. I prayed for healing of uh, Emerson the other night. Uh, I'm going to continue to pray for Chris's son that he would have healing, but... We want to remove the trial, and I think sometimes we're the, we're the worst enemy in, in oft, oftentimes because we're, we're just 
we're so out of touch with God that God has it there for a reason. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach us through them. And we just want it to go away. We want everybody to be happy. And you know what? God wants us happy too, but he also wants us holy. He wants us holy. We need to learn how to make a right use of the trial. So to bear up under trials, and then secondly, to discern what God's purpose is in the trial. You know, one of the first questions you ask in the midst of a trial is why? Well, the only place you're going to get that question answered is from God. He's the only one that can tell you the why. So what's your purpose in the midst of this trial? What are you trying to teach me? And it's not going to come like that. It's not going to be immediate. It may take time, but he will reveal to you what it is. Thirdly, to know what he, how he wants us to respond. See, there's a, na- there's a natural response, those nat- natural inclinations we talked about. There is a spiritual response in the midst of a trial. And, and I think Chris and Michelle are an example of over the years, they have had both natural inclinations, but they have developed a spiritual side, a spiritual response, starting a ministry. They're both in seminary. Uh, their lifestyle has changed. God, they have listened to the voice of God. Is that going to be true for everybody who goes through a similar trial? No. But that's what God was telling them to do. A spiritual response. He will show us how to respond. And he will also help us control our, our natural inclinations. To, to Okay, God, what do you got in the midst of this? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do? And if you see that he's doing something in your life, why am I getting mad? Why do I want to get even? Why do I want to get out of the trial if he's using it to change my life? That's why we need this wisdom. Well, where do we get it from? Obviously, let him ask of God. And guys, hear, hear me on this one. I'm not ridiculing any of these, these options, but too many of us go to Christian self-help books. You know, we go straight to the bookstore. Who's written a good book on this topic? Who's written a book on divorce? Who's written a book on... Uh, addiction. Who's written a book on this? Who's written? Let me get some tapes. Let me get some CDs. Let me get a DVD. We go to our Christian friends. And the problem is most of us don't have a clue to tell you what to do. We just sit there like a deer in the headlights and stare at you. Or we'll misquote scripture. Or we'll, we'll say the, the good Christian thing to say, which is, man, I'll be praying for you. And then we completely forget about it. You know, my dad taught me something a long time ago, and I don't practice it religiously, but it's, it's a good word of advice to all of us. If somebody comes up to you and says, man, I'm really struggling, I've got a trial in my life, the best thing you can do is say, let's pray right now, because you will forget. If you walk away, you'll forget. So just say, well, let's, let's pray right now. It will disarm them. They'll go, well, gosh, I, I didn't mean for you to take that seriously, but, you know, let's stop right now and let's pray. Let's pray. But we, we turn to books, we turn to our Christian friends, we go to secular counselors, which is probably the worst thing we could do in most cases. We go to our pastor, you know, go to the pastor, he must know. I'll be real honest, I don't have the answer to all your problems. Uh, I, I, can, I can pray with you and I can point you to scripture, but these are not your first options. Don't go to the Bible answer man, you know, Hank Hanegraaff. What would he do? What would he say? You know, all of these have wisdom. All of them can give you some insights. But where does James say to go first? He says, go to God. True wisdom is from God. Uh, There are all kinds of sources of wisdom out there, but we want true wisdom, his wisdom, not man's wisdom, not from a book, 
but from him. Over in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 21, it says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, this is a different kind of wisdom. This is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. Uh, The wisdom of man is foolishness. It's idiocy compared to the wisdom of God. The world does not know how to handle trials. And so don't go to him to find out. Go to God. Go for the source of true wisdom. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. He looks at it and goes, guys, why are you turning there? Why don't you turn to me? So James says, ask of God. Ask of God. Well, how do we get this wisdom? James 1 verse 5 says, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. See, we take this verse and we apply this verse out of context and we use it for everything we need. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. You know, health, wealth, prosperity. That is not what this verse means. It's got to be kept in its context. If you need wisdom in the midst of trial, you have to ask The only one who can give it to you. This verse is a call to prayer. Our first response in the midst of trial should be prayer. Go to him and say, Lord, I need wisdom. How am I supposed to handle this? How am I to react to this? And guys, I think we need to practice this with even the small things in life. The flat tires, the the letter from the IRS. It could be anything. How do I handle this? The kid who's disobedient. Uh, an argument with your wife. Lord, how do you want me to respond? I need wisdom. So prayer. Peter David says this, what better gift could they request than the wisdom they needed to withstand the trials they faced? What better gift to ask God than I just need wisdom? I'm not asking you to take it away, but if if it's going to be here, because you'll take it away in your timing, give me the wisdom I need to withstand it and to endure it and to learn from it. George Stulak says this, In the face of such trials, what shall the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ do? He should ask God for the wisdom that is lacking. This is not to dismiss the problems with a simplistic solution, but is to face the problems with the root solution, him. It's not blowing it off. It's not you know going to Nick and Sonny and saying, Oh, don't you worry about your little girl. Oh, it's just leukemia. It's okay. Don't worry about that. It's not being flippant. It's saying, let's go to the source. Let's figure out how we're to endure this trial together. But it goes on in verse 6. It says, he must ask in faith. We have to believe. We have to believe that he will indeed give the wisdom we're asking for. This is not for a new car. This is not for a bigger house, a nicer job. This is about wisdom. Don't take this verse and use it for your whims. This is, if you need wisdom, ask, but you have to believe that he will give it. And that involves faith. Pray, believing. Pray, believing. Verse 6 goes on and says, without any doubting. This is where it gets sticky, guys. Without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You mean i got to pray, i got to believe, and I can't doubt? Man, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have the capacity to do that. That word doubting, and we'll take it apart here in just a second, it's not doubting whether he can or will. It's confidence. It's, it's this idea that, you know, I'm going to ask, but I don't think anything's going to happen. 
I'm, I'm going to ask, but I don't think God's going to answer. I don't think God's going to give me the wisdom that I'm asking for. It's that kind of doubting. It doesn't mean that we have to ignore our doubts because doubts are natural. They're normal. You're going to have doubts, guys. We're human. It doesn't mean trying to manufacture feelings of certainty. Well, I just got to believe. I just got to believe. I just got to believe. You can't do that. James is asking for a single-minded commitment to God. In the midst of your trial, even in the midst of your doubts, it's saying, okay, God, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to try to trust you. I'm going to try to believe in you. And I'm not going to fluctuate back and forth. Faith remains resting in God despite doubts and holds on during trials. It, 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 you just keep going back and saying, Lord, I don't understand it. I'm even having some struggles here with doubting, but you know what? I'm going to keep coming back to you. I'm going to keep asking you for wisdom. I'm going to keep asking you to give me what I need to endure the trial you have me in. It's coming to him. It's a confident trust in God regardless of the circumstances. See, we trust God when things are great, don't we? It's when things get sticky that we start not trusting God. Well, I don't know. You don't seem as faithful and loving as I thought you were. He's saying, don't doubt. Don't walk away from him. Don't turn your back on God in the midst of the trial. Because if you do that, guess what? You'll never learn the lesson you can learn from the trial. Because you've walked away from the source of wisdom. That's what he's trying to say. Job was able to say, even if he slays me, I will hope in him. This is a guy that lost everything. And he goes, hey, even if God slays me, I'm going to keep hoping to him. I'm going to keep going back to the source. I'm going to keep trusting him, even though I don't understand it. And even though Job doubted at times, but he kept going back to the source. So does this mean you can never doubt? Here's the picture, guys, that, that is being painted for you and I. It's an ongoing debate. It's, it's going back and forth. It's believing and not believing. It's, it's, okay, God, I trust you this time. I don't trust you this time. It's this back and forth, like waves tossed back and forth by the wind. Think about waves. They are totally non-foundational. There's no foundation, and they are at the whim of the winds. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be at the whim of circumstances, but keep coming back to the, the, to the source. When we doubt, we're really showing our lack of faith in God. I don't trust you. You're not the God you say you are. So it's not, don't doubt we can never doubt again. It's just saying, don't be, don't build a habit of doubt. Doubting God, going back and forth. It's the images of a guy who constantly doubts. And if you constantly doubt, guess what? You will stop going to the source. You will stop trusting him and you will stop asking. Remember, wisdom. It's about wisdom. See, the guy who doubts misses out. Doubters, it goes on, says, should never expect to have their request answered. And if you're doubting, you're not going to get your request answered. God is not going to answer you in the midst of, if you're, if you're not trusting him, you're not going to get the answer you want. They really don't believe the one they're asking can deliver what he has promised. See, don't put this on God. It's not like God sitting up there saying, you're, you're a doubter. And because you're a doubter, I'm not going to answer you. You're the problem. You don't believe he will do it. And I think what James is really saying, it's your own disbelief that will cause the answer not to come. You'll, you won't get the wisdom because you don't even believe in it. You don't believe in it. You will not put it to the test. 
For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Here's how the New Revised Standard Version uh, translates it. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Hey, if you're double-minded and you're unstable in all your ways and you don't really think God can do it, it isn't going to happen because you don't believe it will happen. You're not going to go to him for the sort, for the wisdom. You're going to come up with your own ways. And this is an idea of, t- it's, it's being double-minded. Two minds are not better than one in this case. Double-minded means double-souled. Double-souled is what the word means. It means divided in your thoughts. You're distracted. You're torn. And you're floating between two different opinions. You're divided in your allegiance. You're sometimes trusting God, but you're sometimes trusting yourself and the world. You're double-souled. The study notes in the Net Bible say, A double-minded man is one whose devotion to God is less than total. His attention is divided between God and other things. And as a consequence, he's unstable and therefore unable to receive from God. If you want wisdom in trials, you've got to go to him. You've got to believe that he will give wisdom. But if you're going to go to other places for your wisdom and other places for your source of comfort, you will never get the wisdom you need. And you will always be frustrated and you will never learn from the trials. And what a, you know, uh, Greg Cook did a sermon just recently talking about don't waste your suffering. And guys, I can't think of anything worse than wasting suffering to never learn through the trials. And all you get is the suffering. And you never grow and you never mature. And you never learn the lesson he wants to teach you. So this kind of doubter is unstable in all he does. He's never sure of anything. And most certainly he's never sure of God. And so he'll never get the wisdom he needs and he asks for. Well, finally, he or she may trust in God and be part of the church. But with a heart filled with doubt, this person is emotionally keeping options open and other lines of support clear. There's a basic instability within that will that will eventually become evident behavior. You cannot trust such a person for he or she is like Aesop's crow trying to walk down two paths at once. The implied call is for commitment. Put all your eggs in one basket and make that basket God. So in the midst of a trial, don't be unstable. Don't float back and forth, but put all your eggs in one basket and say, okay, God, I don't understand this trial. I don't particularly like this trial. I would really like it to go away, but you know what? I'm going to put all my eggs in your basket and trust you to teach me what I need to learn from this trial. I think Chris and Michelle are an example and a testimony of what you can learn through trials. Many of you could get up and share testimonies to the same degree. But guys, what I want us to do right now is for our closing time, for the last minutes we have together, and we're going to end with this. And when you're done, I want you just to leave. You're going to pray around your tables. And here's what I want you to pray for, and we're going to be specific. I want to pray for Nick and Sonny Espinette and their little girl Emerson, who's suffering with leukemia, going through chemotherapy. I want us to pray for Chris and Michelle Groff and their son's rehabilitation effort. I want to pray for Matthew and Ashley Mason, whose son Logan had surgery, I believe it was yesterday, for a skull fracture, five years old. Um, I want you to pray that God would give these men and women, wisdom in the midst of the trial they're in. So spend some time around your tables praying for these specific individuals. And if there's something at your table you need to pray for, pray for that. And when you're done, 
just quietly leave and we'll be done for the morning.